Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome David Berry, CEO at Velo Health and general partner at Flagship Pioneering of the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, David. Uh, along with this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Sasha Armina. We'd love to welcome once again, David to the show and ask him for a brief introduction if you can kick things off with us. Sure, well, first, Jazz, Sasha, Great to be here today, really appreciate the invite. Um, so quick background on me, uh, grew up in New York, uh, did my undergrad at MIT, did an MD PhD at Harvard and MIT, um, but took a little bit of a detour, I guess, at that point, which is while I was in school, I started uh, starting companies and got bit by that entrepreneuring bug and launched about six companies while I was in school two of which ultimately went public, two got acquired, one didn't work out when it was a consulting company. Needless to say, uh, I probably wasn't going down a path to practice clinical medicine and ended up joining uh, a firm then known as Flagship Ventures, now known as Flagship Pioneering, where I spent about uh, 15 or so years, was a general partner for a number of those years. But I'd say what drew me to Flagship in the um, first instance was this notion of company creation. I saw this opportunity that was sitting in front of us of using human data and the power of computation to transform the discovery, the discovery and development process for therapeutics and have been on a mission at Valo Health for the last two and a half years to take that as a way where we can transform the way that drugs are developed writ large. So really over the last uh, 16 years have been focused on using innovation in life sciences through a whole series of different companies to go after a series of important industries, because ultimately the thing that's been driving me through that journey has been how we can have impact, how we can make change, how we can induce those sorts of changes that can be industry changing and have broad impacts on, on people across the world. What a wonderful introduction, David. And thank you for that background. Um, you're weaving here into our next question. Uh, it's been an illustrious career you've had, to say the least, uh, and some amazing uh, journeys you've been on through a host of companies you've helped create. Um, help us here tie that work together. What's been your North Star guiding you? Sure. This actually became something very clear to me in the course that ultimately led me to launch Valo Health. 
And, and I remember it really clearly because in the flagship model, what I would do is work with a team, we'd come up with a great idea or what we thought was a great idea, work it through the flagship process, ultimately launch the company. I'd step in as the founding CEO. And then at some point, we would go and, and hire someone as, a, as, a, as the full-time or the go-forward CEO. And what was interesting is I remember distinctly, I was having a discussion with uh, one such candidate. And he said to me, what's the one thing in your life that you're most proud of? Well, my response was convincing my wife to marry me. Um, he then said, no, 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 no. Um, okay, I guess what's number two? And I said, having my kids. And I said, you know, I'm going to be intentional about that order because number one is a prerequisite for number two. He said, okay, fine. Um, how about a work-related something? And I thought about it. And the answer that I was able to come up with was during a role that I had um, and have and still have it, with the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network, I got involved in co-authoring the Global Development Goals. And, and I shared that with him as what I thought was the most impactful thing that I did. But what was interesting to me, because that goal really speaks to something that's been driving me of how can you have big impact, global impact, real impact. It also hit me that that wasn't the impact that I set out in my career to, to ultimately achieve. And what I was really trying to figure out how I could achieve, and that helped to clarify it in words, if I can go back to the um, MIT motto, uh, menace at manas, minds and hands, it's the how do, you, how do I build something, build it directly, that's able to unlock this kind of transformation. And I've been privileged along the way to be involved in companies that span from energy companies looking to replace the way we think about fuels to agriculture companies like Indigo and Inari that are allowing us to rethink the way we use, treat, think of uh, agriculture and what ultimately agriculture can, can do with us. But most of, the, most of my time in the entrepreneurial world has been spent in uh, the therapeutics world. And there, you know, it's always struck me that there's this strange discontinuity. Of course, we all know that therapeutics have changed many people's lives, have changed their families for the positive. And that's, that's been great. But over the last century or so, there have been all of what, 1,500 drugs that have been approved. There are over 13,000 diseases that exist. And so when we look at it, we're just at the beginning of our trip to try to change the way that we deal with disease. We're barely at the tip of the iceberg around how we can treat, how we can manage disease. We don't even have enough drugs if we assumed it was one drug per disease, which it's not, to statistically be the amount of an iceberg that's above water. And it's in that context that we really have to recognize that we're at the beginning. So I'm really excited by this notion that we can take this emerging field and make it something that can be truly impactful and impactful, frankly, around the globe. And David, as we embark on this episode uh, to help perhaps tie that North Star question together, a lot of your work has been centered around uh, creation and innovation of amazing biotech innovations. Uh, one question we like to frequently ask our guests comes from Dennis Gabor, 
electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, he says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Sure. I really like that question because, frankly, I think it fully embodies the way to think about what invention is, right? I mean, when we think about science and the scientific journey, there is an arc of discovery that we're ultimately trying to follow or trying to understand. And yes, in some cases, we can, we can get ahead of it. Uh, we can get ahead of the traditional arc. We can think about things that might have been a little bit ahead of their time or a lot ahead of their time, as has often been attributed to, to Einstein. But I think this is best characterized in the context of Mozart, right? Which is that if there weren't Mozart, the pieces of Mozart never would have been created. There isn't an inevitability to solving the sorts of things that are more on the creative side. And this is the beauty of inventing the future in my mind. And not that I would ever put myself on the same footing or even the same plateau or even the same mountain as, as a Mozart. But to me, what inventing the future is, is having that creativity to imagine what is the future that we want? How can we create the frontier that allows it to happen? How can we work backwards to define those steps that allow us to get from here to that future? But the important piece, and this is one of those things that I think often gets lost, the invention process is not a linear process. And it's, it's a concept to me that actually goes all the way back to Galileo and gets reinforced by Edison, which is that we have to learn in this process because when you make a leap, you land in an unknown territory, you're foraging new ground. And the second that you land there, the world is not what you expected. And you have to take the information you're getting from that new frontier and incorporate it and then take your journey to the next step. So it's great to be able to imagine the future that you want, but then you have to walk that path that allows you to actually get there. And even that future that you were trying to get to is often a different future than you originally thought you were going down. And, and it's in that context that I think it's, there's that imagination, but the recognition of how you make it real and that reality and the, the willingness to stick with it as you go through the inventive process is something that requires a tremendous amount of fortitude that to me, I actually find an exhilarating part of the journey as you can bring forth a future that not even you imagined when you set out to try to invent the future. David, thanks for providing many seeds for thought in the introduction. would like to take it to the topic uh, you're a real expert in, which is innovation and drug discovery and development. So um, you've been both a serial biotech entrepreneur and investor in, in the space of um, therapeutics. To help provide some context for our episode, could you share with us, uh, in your eyes, how drug discovery and development have changed in the last 30 years? Sure, so let me actually go a little bit further, further back than 30 years. Um, when we think about drug discovery and development at the beginning of the last century, in a way there was almost a sledgehammer approach, which is these medicines that were empirical would almost emerge. And while that's changed in some fields, to be honest, in other fields, it hasn't changed all that much. 
But what happened about 30, 40 odd years ago that started us down this path of a significant evolution that I think has changed drug discovery and development forever and for the better was the emergence of biotechnology. And we go all the way back to the beginning, right? We think about the birth of companies like Genentech. Genentech was founded on effectively insulin and other such, other such genes and proteins that were, that were discovered to have an association such that in a patient who is missing a protein, you could use recombinant technologies to make that protein, restore function and treat them. And it was tremendously useful in the context of diabetes where you no longer had to depend on uh, insulin from pigs. It was tremendously useful in restoring say um, blood levels, hematocrit through uh, erythropoietin, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time that that grew from a standing start into a large industry in its own right, it was a almost digital framework that was emergent, but linear. And, and I mean that because you'd find one gene, one protein, and when you had that linearity and that association of disease with what's called causality, which is, as it sounds, the cause, then you could get those effects, but that's not universal. And it was less than I think people were hoping it would be when we went down that framework. Now, there's been a whole set of tools that have taken that to the next level, right? Things like gene therapy, which allows us to potentially use nucleic acids and other such approaches instead of just a protein, things like protein engineering that allow us to improve upon what the original state might have been and reduce things like um, the way that the body might reject a protein through the immune system, et cetera. Um, this has been accelerated more recently by technologies like gene editing a la CRISPR. Um, but something interesting happened about 10 years ago. And this has opened up, I think, the beginning of a, the, that opened up the beginning of the second stage, if you will, in my mind of drug discovery and development in the more modern era. And that's what I like to think of as digital integration. Now, in the context of digital integration, there's a small number of companies that have been able to take what I'll call a causal target. That is something that underlies a disease. And we know that that target to be the cause of the disease or the treatment to be highly, highly associated with a highly successful therapeutic, that if you can put engineering systems around it, you can very efficiently go from insight to drug. Now, the reality of that sits right in front of us. If we look at Moderna, they spent the last 10 years standing up a digitally integrated platform. And I believe we're, we're really the first one to do that. Now, going back over just the last two years, right, we've all seen this play out in real time and often have conversations around it, of course, around our dinner table. What's fascinating about it was in a matter of weeks, they were able to go from a viral gene target, which in these sorts of cases has a high degree of causality, especially as you think about the association with the vaccine. Their engineering systems allowed them to very quickly make a drug out of it. And what's interesting is over the last less than two years, Moderna has put drugs into more patients than the entirety of the biotech industry before it. And that's really where the power of digital integration has made itself into a reality and a reality that many of us have directly experienced. But we're at a precipice. And that's really because 
human data allows us for the first time to think of what I like to think of as digital nativity. And it's in that framework of really being digitally native where that next generation, that next level, that transformative framework actually becomes really powerful and creates the potential tipping point for us to think about yet a new future and one that I think can bring forth some of the visions that we might see as opportunities for the future of drug discovery and development. Thanks, David. Um, I feel like you've already alluded to um, the next question I was going to ask uh, when talking about digital nativity. Um, so why is now really the perfect time to further transform the drug development process? Could you elaborate on um, the very recent changes in, in, in the field and uh, what do you see upcoming next? Absolutely. Um, data. It's all about data. What the genome revolution has started to enable from 20 odd years ago, from what digital records have started to enable from 20 some odd years ago, what proteomics, what other such techniques have allowed us to start having is data and data at large scale. But we have to be really careful because there's a lot of places that have a lot of data. But in certain pockets, there's high quality, high density human data. And that data at sufficient depth to be able to draw out powerful insights of what underlies disease is just now emerging. And it's that data that allows us to look at diseases broadly in the context of what is the underlying gene protein biomarker association where we can find those relationships with causality and do it for big diseases, the diseases that take lives of our friends and loved ones, heart disease, cancer, neurodegeneration. And it, it's now at a point where it creates that opportunity where we can not just understand these diseases in new and interesting ways, but if we have the right engineering systems, we can translate that into drugs. The data allows us to think about how we can make those drugs more fit for the indication. And ultimately, by thinking about what's possible in the setting of clinical trials, we now have the opportunity to advance these drugs in the right patient population at the right time in the course of disease to be able to maximize impact. And that's something where even thinking about that just five years ago, we didn't have the data at all to stand that up. And that's why I think really because of data, we're at this very, very interesting tipping point. Yeah, I definitely agree. We, we see so much new development in, in the field of um, AI-driven and data-based uh, drug discovery. It's uh, your own Velo Health, which we'll discuss in a moment. Um, there are multiple new companies such as Royvent AI, um, Exciencia, which just actually IPO'd um, this um, fall, and many more. So um, what, in your opinion, distingu distinguishes good from great companies in this, in this space uh, for you as an operator and investor? And how do you think those great companies will shape uh, the future of the field? Sure. Um, so let me start by separating out two different versions of AI, right? 
And, and I want to be careful in the way that we think about it, because I think of AI driven versus AI as a tool. And those are really important distinctions because when you think about what AI is as its core is, despite the fact that it has a branding phenomena, a marketing phenomena uh, around it, all AI is, is a statistical tool. And we have to be really careful and clear about what it is and what it isn't. AI in its own right is not a transformer. It's just statistics. So when you look at the vast majority of what's going on in AI-driven drug discovery, all that's being done is we're taking the existing model of drug discovery and development and applying a new statistical model to it. Now, keep in mind, statistics have been used for 40 plus years in drug discovery and development. So there's a new form of statistics. It's now being provided. And that allows you to draw new insights. That's great. We've seen this revolution over and over. And every time it's been met with a ton of hype, and I hate saying it, um, reality that hasn't lived up to the hype. But then there's AI as a tool. And what gets really interesting here is if you have the right foundation and AI just happens to be the, the enabler, the way you actually stand it up, there's actually an opportunity to do something different. So part of what we, the way we think at Vala is that our focus is using data to transform the way that we think about drug discovery and development. And the way we think about doing that is by using this data to create a digitally native, vertically integrated pharmaceutical company. What I mean by that, we have the right sort of data that we can, that we can use to draw analyses at each and every stage of the drug discovery and development process. But unlike the current model, it's unified. The analysis is, connection, is connected. We don't have distinctive KPIs at each and every stage. We have a framework where what we do in target discovery helps us to better enable clinical trials. We can design molecules so that we can help facilitate performance in the clinic. And that's only possible in the context of a digitally native, vertically integrated pharmaceutical company. So from that standpoint, it comes, out, it comes down to the data. AI just happens to be a tool that you can use it in that context. But for example, where we started was by asking, how do we do this differently? Not how do we use a capability in an old model? Because I think we've all seen this over and over. Old models do old things. So applying a new word to an old model, we're not gonna get transformation from that. Thanks, David. Um, just to uh, further discuss your grand vision of, uh, of the field, uh, perhaps a bit beyond uh, Vela, um, what are, your, in your opinion, the key drivers of um, the sustainable development within the biotech industry? And how do you see the future of um, biotechnology being shaped by these drivers? Sure. We're at this point where I think the social contract that we've struck between drug developers and patients has to start coming true at a different scale. Right? We've talked about how we can deliver meaningful treatments, some even use the word cures, and do it repeatedly and do it durably. But where we sit today, and we've seen this in the context of recent 
Alzheimer's drugs, we've seen this in the context of a whole range of different therapeutics, is we're at this point where we need to be able to deeply understand disease, make the drugs that are relevant for disease at the right time to intervene and deliver meaningful and durable change for patients. And that's the core of what we all signed up for, right? And when we think about it, right, again, 1,500 odd drugs for 13,000 diseases. We've barely started. And I think it's really important to remember that. So ultimately, what do we need to be able to do this? We need to change the cost. We need to change the time. We need to increase the probability of success of developing each and every drug. This is something where there's a fundamental and foundational opportunity that if we have, an op if we have a new model, a new model that has different features associated with it, there may be an opportunity to one, create new insights, deliver new drugs, but two, as we think about pushing the limits and pushing the limits and pushing the limits, there's a lot of great ideas out there. And many of these ideas for idiosyncratic reasons, for historical reasons, for ecosystem reasons, have been trapped. They've never seen the life of the day. Of day. And I see an opportunity where we can actually democratize drug discovery and development. And I think that becomes a huge unlock for us to think about the future and the future that we all want, because we're so early in the journey here that if we can unlock creativity and unlock it in mass, in mass, then the power of transformation, I think, is tremendous. And we can get to a scale and scope of biotechnology that feels like a dream today. This sounds like a grand goal for all. Um, and you sitting in the interface of um, an operator and an investor in the space, how do you uh, see particularly with your involvement in uh, with flagship pioneering, the role um, flagship uh, can play in, in the processes you just discussed, such as really bringing new models and uh, democratizing uh, drug development. Sure. Um, so flagships always sat at this very interesting point in uh, the innovation ecosystem. And it's one that I've uh, been deeply appreciative of being a part of for the last um, 16 or so years. And what's really interesting about it is when you get into the core of, if, I, if you'll allow me to put it this way, incentive, right? Because there's a ton of great research that's being done. There's a ton of great science that's being done. Uh, the, the funding that comes out of the government is very powerful. It allows us to get new insights and it's all very exciting. And we've all seen the benefits that have come out of it. But when you get into the core of incentives, in the academic world, People have to think about the next grant. They have to think about the next paper. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it means that, well, on one hand, they might be trying to come up with an insight. They're also thinking about the near term and the medium term. And sometimes that makes it more difficult to ask some of these really foundational and transforma transformational questions, like how do I change X, Y, or Z. And part of the power of flagship is that it's always allowed us to ask these really, really big questions by not being either 
a big company that has quarterly targets or in the academic setting, it has this unique purview that we can have the conversations with all of the different stakeholders. We can engage with all of the different stakeholders. We can partner with all of the different stakeholders, but we can ask those questions around where might a step function be? And that's a privileged place to be. And it's something that I've, I've had a great honor to be, uh, to be a part of um, and still am. But what's, what, what's very powerful about it is when you follow the methodology at Flagship, which is one of create, ask big questions, create big ideas, try to disprove them, use the information from when you succeed or fail in disproving them to iterate your hypothesis and create better, and then do very intentional experiments to understand the power of it. What you're doing is you're exploiting at a powerful scale, scientific methodology in the context of innovation with appropriate stage gates. And you can ask fundamentally larger questions. I think that's been one of the really cool, one of the really cool pieces of that. And that's something that I think we've been able to apply very successfully in the context of energy, agriculture, diagnostics, therapeutics. It's helped us to move into completely new spaces when people had no comfort of moving in. That's how we were able to do things of moving into the microbiome before others, how we were able to move into CRISPR very early, but also how we've been able to think of, say, some of the frontiers of what one might broadly call gene editing. And I think this is a, a trait that applies to almost anything that flagship wants to touch, just the ability to think in that way. And it goes a little bit to how, how Valo ultimately started because you know, we had some really interesting questions we were asking at the time, but what we saw was an opportunity that I thought no one else was looking at, which is that the scope and scale of high quality, high density human data was just becoming available. And at the same time, AI, because there was so much work going on it in canonical drug discovery and development, if you will, patterns, was actually pulling people away from what I thought to be the bigger vision and the bigger opportunity. And because we had this flexibility of thinking big, thinking in an unconstrained manner, we were able to pursue it with, with vigor and with intentionality, which helped us to ultimately launch Valo with, if you allow me to put it this way, ahead of steam. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. It is fascinating to learn how your mental model applies to so many different fields um, and uh, to the drug therapeutics, which as you mentioned, um, is a very important field we need to keep advancing and we're just in the beginning of. Um, now that we're talking about uh, Valo, could you please elaborate on um, your mission and also the the technology, the Opal platform technology, which is enabling um, Valo. Happy to. Um, so we launched Valo in 2019 
with the vision that we could use human data on a vertically integrated platform powered by AI-driven computation to transform the way we discover and develop drugs all in. And in this context, the idea is that we have been and we continue to uh, stand up the Opal computational platform to be a single unified platform that spans everything from the beginning of the drug discovery and development process, i.e. uncovering a target, all the way through approval and potentially beyond. And it's in that framework, we're effectively trying to take the, call it 10 to 15 macro steps that go into drug discovery and development, which have been locally optimized. And what that has done right, is it creates these local data centers, local data structures, local data analytics, local KPIs, and the real problem, a throw it over the wall mentality, where the focus is on how do I accomplish my local goals, as opposed to how do I think about maximizing approvals and impact on patients. And I don't mean that in a way to say anything negative about intentionality. This is a systems problem. And what we saw as the opportunity was to now use human data to build a systems optimization. And what we've done over the last two years is to stand up the capabilities. We have a new way to do target discovery, but here what we're doing is we're finding these gene protein biomarker associations with causality. We're doing it across different therapeutic areas from cardiovascular to oncology to neurodegeneration and beyond. We're doing it in a way where we can bring what we believe to be high confidence to areas that are typically associated with high impact diseases. And that intersection is something that's really important because that's where I think we can unlock that kind of transformation for patients, that kind of transformation for their families. And it's in that space that we can understand not just what do you develop a drug against, but in what patients and when in the course of their disease. Then we've built engineering systems powered by human data again, that allow us to design small molecules. Now, small molecules have so much power that they can deliver in terms of therapeutics, right? It's very hot to talk about CRISPR and gene therapy and things along those lines. But the reality is, if you could solve the, the inherent or the perceived to be inherent liabilities of a small molecule, it's the drug patients want. And I say that because we'd all rather take a pill than have say an injection in the eye or go to an infusion center for 12 hours. And with enough human data and the right human data and the right computational tools, that can be possible. That opens up a whole set of different therapeutic opportunities. And then of course, thinking about the clinical trials that we can do where ultimately if you can reduce costs, reduce time and increase probability of success by putting the right drug in the right patients at the right time and understanding where those patients are in the time course of their disease, you can change the way we think about clinical trials. And if you do that all together with an aligned data framework and aligned architecture, I believe that ushers in a new way to think about disease and the therapeutics to manage it. Thanks, David. Um, beyond making drugs um, more 
effective uh, and delivering them more efficiently to the market. Um, how can um, Valo address the disease disparities uh, which currently exist and uh, democratize access to drugs? I think it's a great question. It's a question that really needs to be asked. Um, when you start uncovering the patients that are susceptible to disease, when you start uncovering the associations of biology to disease, you start finding out that there are different, if you will, subsets of, of disease. And the one drug fits all approach just doesn't actually work. So what becomes really interesting is if you can figure out, we have a drug, we understand the patient population, we know in whom it's gonna work, we know in whom it's gonna be safe, then you can be very intentional about the development of, the, of those drugs. And what's interesting is there are populations that have very clear increased risks of diseases. There's also populations that have very clear differentiations in their diseases. And I actually think this is something to be embraced. Understand the differences and use that as a basis to develop therapeutics for those populations. Let me give, uh, let me give an example because this gets into, I think, some interesting frameworks that I frankly, are, I think are very important for us to think about. The Latinx population has a predisposition to diabetes. And what's interesting in the context of the population is for any number of reasons, there tends to be a later diagnosis, there tends to be less management, there tends to be worse complications, and they tend to suffer more. And what's interesting is one can start understanding how and when you can have the best impact. Now, part of the challenge is at the same time, while we can draw out some of these associations, what we can also understand is in what patients might this drug have the best profile to be able to have action. And I see opportunities where we can be transformative for a population by being very intentional about how we can embrace, if you will, the opportunity to transform their engagement with disease by meeting them where they are, by allowing them to have a better, a, if I'll put it this way, a trusted relationship with ultimately what's coming out in the therapeutic side. And, and look, we, we're seeing this live right now, which is there are populations right now that don't trust COVID vaccines for any number of different reasons. And while I'm not gonna get into why that might be and who that might be and underlying motivations or anything along those lines, in the areas where you can start understanding the nuance of biology that associates with this, that creates a powerful opportunity to transform people's lives for the better. And it's something that I think requires us to embrace it. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by this because as we start deeply understanding these populations, we can start understanding when in the course of their lives do they start getting the signs of, of diabetes? When do they start getting the prequel to diabetes? Is there a better time to engage? Because if you can start managing the disease very early on before it becomes something that has a durability to it, perhaps we can change their engagement with disease. 
And I look at this as something that's really important. But at the same time, look, I mean, the challenge with the drug discovery and development model is intrinsic to the fact that it costs so much. And in that context, it's caused this biasing to think about big diseases, general populations, and a swing for the fences kind of mentality. The reality is we know so little, we as a field, we as an industry know so little about biology. What, what AI allows us to do is to go well beyond the human mind, right? Humans can think in what, three, five variables at a time. How many variables are there in biology? It's tens of thousands, tens of millions, tens of billions. We don't even know how many variables, but on any of those scales, humans can't think like that. And so humans can't intrinsically embrace it. So how are we to sit there and say, we know all the good ideas, we know all the bad ideas. The power of AI is to take all ideas and almost play a neutral party that we can help them all become developed. Because if we can think about changing the cost and the timelines for drug, drug discovery and development and build more robustness to increase the probability of success, then by taking the tools and allowing others to use them in the right sort of way, we can create basically this idea, if you will, framework where we see which ideas actually work. And ultimately, that may become a tool to unlock much, much more powerful treatments for patients and even different ways to engage patients that we haven't even thought about today. Velo definitely has um, room and scope for so much innovation on very, very different levels, as we just discussed. So how do you, um, how do and how did you build the Velo team to um, realize this vision? So building teams is incredibly important in the context of any company because ultimately you have two things that define a company. It's your team and the money you have to use. And one, the first one, being way more important than the second. Um, what we're really doing at Valo is we're building a technology company that happens to express itself in the pharmaceutical industry, in the therapeutics world. And in that context, we said, how do we take the best practices of technology and deploy them in a field that's been recalcitrant to that kind of innovation? So what we did was we forced ourselves to build a team that's right at that interface of technology and life sciences. And we created a framework that allows us to bring these two fields together. And I like to shorthand it, right? Which is the abbreviation API is a really important abbreviation for software coders or software practitioners as it is for drug developers, but it doesn't mean the same thing. And, and it's in that way we need to force ourselves to actually build a language. Now, I would say on one hand, yes, we've been focused on how we can bring together technology and life sciences and our, our company at every level is built right at that intersection. But it's more than that. We also have to build a new, new language and we've been dedicated to that. Really thinking about what is, what is the crux of the innovation? How can we get these different styles of thought to come together? And I'll give you one example of this. One of the things we're very keen on is how we stand up, how we deploy, how we focus on a flywheel. Now, of course, in the context of Amazon, 
Amazon has well published its flywheel architecture around how it can ultimately lower costs, improve customer experience. And that has helped to create Amazon into a very powerful uh, force that gives consumers what they want when we want, right? And we might complain that we said, oh, it's two days shipping and it came on day three. But the reality is everyone goes back to Amazon over and over because they've built this framework of scale that's very, very powerful. And they do have a consumer centricity that's really important. We've tried to take a very similar logic of how we think about data as driving our flywheel. And ultimately what we're delivering is something for the benefit of the patient. So when we take those as a framework, what it causes us to do is create data unification in different ways than others have. To think about every form that we captured data, to think about how we can bring data together to go beyond just a single program, to think about it across the life cycle of where our company is gonna go. And it's in that context that we need people who are willing to step out of their comfort zone to say, okay, I have a lifelong experience in thinking about developing drugs program by program. How do I think about it en masse? And even outside of the area that I work on, as one example, how do I think about data, right? And at the same time, having people in the technology world who are used to very rapid cycling, think about things that intrinsically move a little bit slower and the intentionality that we can bring to it to actually bring in a bit more to a technology-like substrate. Thanks, uh, David. Really looking forward to uh, seeing how Vala is gonna um, work um, in, in this exciting area and address many of the 13,000 diseases you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. Um, in the last section of our discussion, I'd like to speak to you about um, responsible by innovation, given your involvement with the United Nations Sustainable uh, Development Solutions Network, as you uh, previously mentioned. So um, the Sustainable Development Goals provide 17 goals and um, over 150 targets in the UN's development agenda. And they broadly act as references for many of our current bioentrepreneurs. Um, I'd like to ask you, what is responsible by innovation to you? And uh, how do you see um, Valor in, in this context? Sure, well, when we think about ultimately where we're trying to go as a society, we're at a very interesting point and we see different features of this play out on the news on a regular basis, right? I mean, and this can include things from uh, climate change to uh, prevalence and risk of pandemics. This can include things like our interface with disease. And, and the first thing I think we have to recognize is we have to be brought together to think about how we can make our existence on this earth a sustainable one, right? We only have one planet, at least where we sit today. And I don't think we're looking at colonizing some, another planet anytime soon. So we have to be very intentional about what that means. We have to be very intentional about how do we think about mitigating climate change. And regardless of the political arguments or things along those lines, we have to think about what does it mean that storm intensity has been increasing? What does it mean that water levels may be causing floods on more frequent bases? What does it mean that there's more frequent wildfires in California on a regular basis? And of course, I'm just talking about in this country, this is around the globe. Um, what does it mean if things like the Gulf Stream starts slowing down? 
right? What does it mean? There's a whole set of implications that come out of that. And so from the first instance, when I think about responsible bioinnovation, we have to think about what is the future that we want to deliver, that we want to deliver in our lifetimes, that we want our kids, our grandkids, and beyond to be able to experience. We have to think about what's the world we want them to inherit. And I believe it's our responsibility to give them a better world than we inherited. And the burden that's on us on that is we have some really exciting and powerful tools to do that. So yes, on one hand, we have to be safe and we have to be smart uh, and we have to be thoughtful. And I think if we align though on the right goals, we can actually get ourselves to some pretty interesting potential transformations. So I tend to think that as long, if we're right-minded about things, um, we can pick the right sort of intentionality. And yes, we have to put security, we have to put defenses, we have to put protection around things. But I worry sometimes that our fear of what might not be perfect, what might not be controllable, what might happen stops us and stops others from being able to unlock some potentially powerful innovation in its nascency. And, and of course, there's always going to be bad actors. We've always seen this, but I think this is one of those sorts of things where unlocking power of, of some of these technologies, I don't think we've even been able to appreciate the tip of the iceberg that it might start representing. And I think, you know, if we start creating the commons, the right rules, the right discussions, but having these in plain sight, right? Open sharing, open communication, open intentionality, this can be very powerful for us all. And I, I say this in the context of AI, right? Because even in the context of AI, in some cases, people get nervous from it. But AI is used in so many different contexts. AI can be used um, by search engines to help you figure out what toilet paper you prefer or other such things, um, you know, but on a consumer side. But in terms of healthcare, the power of AI is one where it doesn't actually access your personal data. It's not actually accessing your financial data. It's not actually putting you at risk, but it's helping to understand what are better opportunities that might exist to enable therapeutic benefit. And it's a therapeutic benefit that you don't know you necessarily need right now. That's where I think this gets really exciting. If we can think about that future where we're open to the power of innovation, I see us as being able to work with people in a highly responsible way and enable the future that they want. And the problem is if we wait until people have a disease, it just might be too late to find the intervention for them. Many thanks, David. I'll pass to Chaz for some closing thoughts. David, uh, as we wrap up here, a few rapid fire questions to close things out. Um, as we've talked a lot about the crystal ball of biotech and what the future holds, uh, can, you, can you share with us what would you say are the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years? We need to understand diseases well. We need to develop drugs across the board for impactful, uh, to be impactful for disease. And we need to figure out how to get them to the right patient at the right time. That's fundamentally and foundationally what we need to do and embrace the thousands upon thousands of currently untreated diseases. As we look ahead 30 years now um, to 2050, can you describe where we will be in biotech and where will they will be then as well? I think biotech in 2050 
has the potential to be a completely different industry from where it is today. If we can get to this point where we deeply understand patient data, there's broad connectivity around the ecosystem, broad alignment around incentives. Ideally, we have deep insights for the vast majority of diseases. We're prosecuting very large numbers of, of therapeutics. And these are the sort of therapeutics that might intervene in the course of disease, but ideally before disease actually sets in and preventing disease from being able to actually become something that's durable. Because wouldn't it be nice to be able to, instead of taking that vitamin pill in the morning, you're taking that sort of thing that might prevent you from ever getting the signs or symptoms of Alzheimer's. And I think with enough capability set, that, well, not real today, is something that might not be impossible. And ultimately what we're looking to do with Valo is to take the sorts of insights that we're getting and deliver a kind of future where we and our partners can take insights broadly and try to develop the right sorts of interventions for patients, do it across the board, across major diseases, get the right drugs to patients at the right time. And I would like for Valo to be the core technology enabler for the pharmaceutical industry, in addition to having a set of very interesting drugs that we've prosecuted internally. To help wrap a bow around this amazing conversation today, any closing thoughts or shameless plugs you'd like to share with our audience? I love Valo. Come check us out. Um, we think we're up to something special. We think we're up to something different. Um, and um, I'll let you be the judge on that. Uh, wonderful. And how can our listeners learn more about your work at Bella? Well, you can always check out our website. Um, uh, we post regularly on uh, LinkedIn, on Twitter, um, and um, we are very excited to continue to share more and more about what we're doing, especially as our platform and our therapeutics move forward. Wonderful. Thanks again for an incredible episode, David. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks once again for joining us. Perfect. Well, thank you. And thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.